Welcome to episode one of our brand new podcast. My name is Kevin Boris. Um, in these podcasts, we're going to be looking at the idea that the COVID-19 has opened our eyes to the fact we need a new economic model to make the world work better. Let's just put it in, a, in simple terms. And in this episode, we're going to be looking at the idea of localism, sort of new ideas and localism. Um, and we have three fantastic guests. Our first guest is Rory Sutherland. Rory is currently the vice chairman of Ogilvy UK. Uh, he's been the creative director since 1988. He's a, a TED global speaker and author of a fantastic book which has the great title of Alchemy, the Surprising Power of Ideas That Don't Make Sense. Rory, welcome to this. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me on. Oh, thank you. Um, we also are joined by Dave Wetzel. Dave was formerly vice chair of uh, Transport for London. He's been president of the Labour Land campaign for 37 years. He's the current CEO of, uh, of Transforming Communities. And, and if you know anything about colours, how colours work, you're always told don't ever have put green on red because green doesn't work. But Dave says that he, what he is is a green socialist. So he explodes that myth completely. Dave Wetzel, thank you for joining us too. Hi, good to see you. And we're also joined by Eric Masaba. Eric is the founder of TEXI, T-E-X-X-I, which is the acronym for Transit Exchange for the 21st Century, a whole new way of doing business. And Eric is, is basically credited with, with inventing the whole concept of ride sharing 15 years ago. That's not who you think invented ride sharing. It was Eric. That's no idle claim. It's true. Anyway, so that's, that's the preamble. But anyway, so that's who we all are. Um, so let's start with, let's start with Rory. Can you, so we've written, we've, we've got an agenda, we're all looking at an agenda here. Uh, we've written the words down, of Rory sets out his stall. I like that as a concept. Can you set out your stall in terms of how you see the new world order working in terms of localism? Yes, I think, I suppose um, the general basis on which I'd operate would be that uh, we have discovered a new equilibrium through, for example, remote work, flexible working uh, to a degree. Uh, by the way, I'm not one of these people who suggest we can all move to the Outer Hebrides. I think London will still have an importance. I think face-to-face -face contact will remain highly important, but not to the egregious extent to which almost all business transactions, B2B transactions, required a kind of meeting and a dinner and a airline ticket as they did before uh, which i think is by the way hugely interesting because what we now have is an opportunity for the spread of ideas without necessarily the movement of people yeah and one of the things i always ask about is is this tech georgist now i don't know if you're familiar with henry george the um, i'm sure dave is uh, the 19th century american economist who believed that there should be a single land value tax because essentially landowners had the power to extract economic value created by other people without doing anything themselves. The reason being that any economic activity which was particularly dependent on a location eventually would fall prey to the um, avarice of its own landowners. Right. 
And so the idea was that tax should be um, paid on the value of the ownership of unimproved land. Um, and it was a weird movement, which has never really gained much traction, despite having people as varied as kind of Winston Churchill um, and Adam Smith, and you can add them all up, Adam Smith and Milton Friedman. And I think partly because it's not a movement conventionally of the right or the left, it failed to fall into either of those two categories and therefore didn't get talked about much. Um, you know, I think it, because it defied political, easy political categorization, I think Georgism sort of fell between two stools. But one of the things I argue is that since government fails to implement Georgist policies and has done more or less completely, there are a couple of Georgist communities in the United States, I think. But apart from that, uh, it's never it's an experiment that's completely untried. It falls to technology to try and replicate the effects. Mm. And so one of the things I would argue is that a large, we always talk about London adding value to the UK economy. London contributes X to the UK economy. And as various people like Paul Collier would say, that we've got to be very careful before we use that because some of that value is actually extracted from the UK economy and put into the pockets of landlords. Yes. Incidentally, we're all Georgists when it comes to roads, to some degree, aren't we? And that nobody allows the Duke of Westminster to stand in Park Lane and demand £10 from me every time I drive down there. But we're not, we don't have the same approach when it comes to the buildings that occupy the spaces between the roads. <clears throat> yeah. And so one of the interesting things is that um, you might have a world post-COVID where a significant number of people... Um, commute less and therefore decide they need to live less centrally, which would mean a spread of wealth outwards from the centre and would also be a catastrophe for banks and landlords, uh, much of whose uh, supposed asset base rests on their extractive power to demand access rights to central London activities or, or accommodation yeah. for that matter. And I also think that once you change that ratio from 5-2 to let's say 2-5 or 3-4, the whole question of where do I want to live generates a very, very different answer. You know, the problem of moving to the seaside was you got five days goddamn commuting and you only got two days by the seaside because the rest of the time it was mostly dark. Right? You know, okay. Suddenly, with a different ratio, those preferences change. And I would argue that a dispersal of power and economic wealth generation, even if it isn't complete and it isn't the perfect Georgia's solution we would welcome, uh, is still good news, partly because with people spending more time in in their homes, they do have more time to invest in the community. Yeah. And I also add a little detail, which is the whole business of participation. D just to be really clear on this, I mean, I have done a small amount of work with Zoom and a few video conferencing companies just to declare an interest, but nothing that I could retire on, believe me. It's mostly voluntary. I think the extraordinary power that this technology, I, I think this is as big as the internet. Not the fact that Zoom exists, but the fact that you now have 60 million people who know how to use it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you don't have that obstacle, well, we can't do the parish meeting on Zoom because nobody over 60 will know how to do it. Churches have learned very quickly. Churches have become broadcasters. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so community participation I watched a Seven Oaks District Council meeting over Zoom. It was broadcast to YouTube, and I watched it on my TV. I'll be absolutely honest with you. There wasn't a chance in hell I would have attended one of those meetings physically. The chance of me ever actually pitching, I don't even know what it took 
takes place normally. The chances of me getting home from London and saying, shall I go home and have a cup of tea? No, I'll go to the Seven Oaks Town Council district council meeting zero okay so the opportunity for collaborative participation without always demanding co-location is the most exciting thing to me to happen since 1994 when i first downloaded the web which was i think it was the precursor of net uh, there was the precursor of netscape and you downloaded it there was only one place you could download a browser from which was the urbana champagne a university in illinois seemed to be the only server where you could download whatever yeah. <clears throat> mosaic i guess it was was it yes, so it i was. downloaded yeah. a mosaic browser and went shit this is this is going to change everything and this in the same way i'm seeing a second similar uh, change in my lifetime whatever happens it ain't reverting to the status quo ante it's a new equilibrium it's not a temporary aberration yeah excellent Thank you for that, Roy. That was that was fascinating. Um, what we're going to do? We're going to hear from hear from Dave, hear from Eric, and then we're going to end. We had, so we only got sort of thirty odd minutes in trying to work out how feasible this is and how this can be implemented in life. So, Dave, what's what's your take on that? So, <coughs> Dave, and I, Dave and I met last in June last year. We had a fascinating discussion. The longest podcast I've ever done in my life, which I do a lot of. I do a football podcast. That's an hour and a mm. half. I think I spoke with you for just over two hours, uh, which is and I, I ran all of it. Didn't I? Didn't change a word. It's it fascinating stuff. But we talked about land tax, land tax value then as well. So here we, here we are, 15 months later, talking about it again in a different setting. So what, what's changed and how can we change it even further? Well, to me, one of the biggest changes is the fact that uh, they're worrying about high streets and uh, corner shops and big retail uh, departmental stores having to close because offices are no longer necessary. People yeah. are not <coughs> traveling the same way to uh, city centers, town centers, to work in offices. Uh, that's going to hit the land values. That will reduce those land values. But of course, land values elsewhere, if productivity increases uh, because of home working, uh, I, I think it possibly could. Uh, I yes. have one experience of that my eldest daughter works from home and um, she reckons she's 20 percent more productive yeah. without the travel time and uh, the diversions that happen when you're working in an office uh, you go and talk about the sport results or what was on telly last night whereas She's not doing that with other people generally, perhaps occasionally on Zoom, funny enough. Um, but um, she feels she's at least 20% more productive. She has a team of 60 people, and she thinks uh, most of whom are also working from home. And she feels that they're more productive as well. So this greater productivity will eventually end up in land rents. And so landowners, if they're allowed to continue to reap in all the land rent, uh, will continue to be uh, the biggest gainers out of this change. And of course, um, I'm going to be doing a uh, discussion uh, with the Working Class Library up in Salford uh, next month on the history of land ownership. Okay. Uh, basically, the history is one of theft. Uh, the most powerful people acquired the land uh, in one way or another 
and uh, charge the rest of us rent to work the land uh, that our ancestors were already working quite happily before, but without paying rent for. So there's no moral or ethical basis why a small percentage of the population of this planet should charge the other 99.9% .9 of us for uh, use of the planet. Um, the planet wasn't creative for the 0.1%. It was surely creative for all of us. And uh, the beauty of a land value tax is it's quite revolutionary without having a revolution. Uh, because when you tax land values, you're collecting a percentage of the rent. And uh, I would argue that that rent being collected, we should reduce taxes on production and trade. Thank and you. Course, that would encourage more production and would encourage more trade. Hopefully, uh, as a green myself, I, I would want to see sustainable production and local trade. I want people to buy uh, local things um, that don't have huge costs of uh, shipping and transportation around the world. And uh, I very much like the craft movement and I see a big future uh, for that uh, in this new economy, this new financial world that we're looking at. And I think that um, land value tax, which has other names as well. Um, annual ground rent is a name that is being used in Scotland. Uh, the Scots seem to be uh, clearer about wanting to own the land and uh, uh, they use the name annual ground rent. But all land value tax does, it collects some of the ground rent that would normally go to the landowner and share it with the public purse. And I think the most useful way to share it with the public purse is to reduce uh, taxes on workers uh, and taxes on production and taxes on our trade. And if, for example, the NHS didn't have to pay income tax or national insurance for the workers it employs, then the National Health Service would have billions of pounds extra to spend each year yeah. on helping us to stay healthy and, and to get us better. So I see a big future for this. So I, I mean, yeah. I mean, interesting, I agree with most of that. I mean, I've, which is odd because I'm a Tory, but I would agree that the ex extractive power of landowners, the good news is that although you're quite right, that the activity will move further out because area increases with the square of distance, the monopolistic power will be hugely reduced. Yeah. So, so at the very simple level, every mile you go further away from central London, uh, the, avail the, the available area to you effectively increases exponentially. So um, that's one good bit of news. If there is a bit of, um, if, if anybody feels like becoming a bastard landowner, by the way, here's a tip, okay, buy seafront property. And the reason for this, my brother did the calculation once. There's about two thirds of an acre for everybody in Britain, roughly speaking. Okay, if you divided the land equally. <clears throat> but in terms of seafront, there's about three quarters of an inch. Right. So if you want to monopolize property in the future because you're a, <laughs> okay, buy beachfront, don't buy city centre.
But start small, buy a beach hut and work your way up. Yeah, yeah, work your way up from a beach yeah, hut. I think so. Absolutely. So, we'll, okay, thank you. We'll, we'll come to Eric. But having you and Dave worked sort of agreeing on things, this is, this is the, the beauty of, 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 you know, of, uh, of Zooms. Um, so, Eric, let's come to you then. Obviously, you, your, your, kind of, your background is in computing and in finance. I mean, you kind of combine those two into that of, of founding the idea of ride sharing. Where does this fit in with, with localism and, and Georgism? I've got another thing I want to bring up afterwards there's another point we can discuss about the extra energy being okay. in homes. Eric take it away it's all yours. Well actually my very first career was or attempted career was aerospace and that without me realizing led me to this idea of what if we treated road space like airspace. Now airports charge for people to arrive at the airport and nobody can say they specifically own the airspace. It's a commons owned by the national government, but they will allow people to manage that airspace so somebody gets a, a rent. That's what airlines do. They buy space to yeah. arrive at airports. We do the same thing with the internet. When you buy a domain, you're renting a specific name space for a specific right. amount of time. And no one person owns the whole internet. It's information, it's cyberspace. But what you can do is you can stake your flag and you can say for this one year or this 10 years i own this domain and i can put my content there and what happens is you get paid by the amount of traffic that comes to you now if we and same with airports so if we apply that model to roads what we'd find is that you would actually have localism simply by saying well what if you can cite your new um what if you can cite your new shopping center or whatever somewhere where you pay for people to come to your uh, place okay yeah. rather than the people paying all of a sudden you've changed the monopoly idea of you've all got to be co-located and concentrated in central london there's whole vast empty spaces in the north of england specifically and an interesting point napoleon iii lived in lancashire would go to southport loved the open boulevard so much he decided to base his new capital once he got back to france paris on southport so napoleon copied Napoleon III copied Southport for Paris. That's why Paris has its wonderful boulevards. It's not French. It's Lancashire. It's a Lancashire seaside town, which also fits the point you were making, Rory, that, yeah, invest in seaside property. So what if we could also pay people for not traveling? So when you're not using a resource to which you are enabled to use, and that would be the access to the road, you get paid for not using it which is a way without communist redistribution to actually give everybody benefits of this road system we've built. And I have a proof of this, by the way. Ikea yep. in the Middle East, but it was an Ogilvy idea. Ikea in the Middle East paid people to visit, by which I mean that the discount you got at Ikea in Dubai was proportionate to the travel you'd undertaken to get there. Brilliant. Ah. In, you, well, you know, Google think they invented that. Google was awarded a patent that they found in 2011. They were awarded in 2014 for that, which is kind of bizarre. Because when we came up with this, we pitched this to Telstra, the Australian uh, telephone version of BT in Australia, to say we can get people to go to shopping centres in Brisbane, Chermside, Bridgman Downs, if they were paid to go. Their parking, even their or their taxi cost is taken taken care of and the whole point is you either take that as a discount of what they pay or you just subtract full stop and the whole point is that would encourage people to go wherever you wouldn't be competing 
for these tiny spaces where the rent's astronomical. This would also make localism, this area I live in, in Liverpool, it's called Greenbank, it was 30 years ago, it was like a small town. You didn't actually have to go to the city centre and you didn't want to. Everything was walkable. And now with the lockdown, we're seeing that happening again. And we'll see more local businesses start again. <clears throat> and if the biggest problem in the north of England is the lack of transport, as Dave knows, I mean, Dave, you did a great job putting in the Jubilee line and the congestion charge and London, you did transformative work under Mayor Livingston. But there's no other city in the UK with anything like the transport spend of London. And that's actually undervaluing all the other assets. The north of England has the same population, all those big core cities from Liverpool to Sheffield, as London, but we've got something like a fifth of the spending per head on transport, which is a real shame. What you can do when you monetize road space time, the same way as airspace time is monetized, is you can pay for all that infrastructure. Sefton Park, which was the precursor to Central Park in New York, where actually Birkenhead Park was, but Sefton Park was done by the same people, that was paid for by selling park view properties. So when the whichever Duke of Lancashire or Earl of Sefton gave the um, land to the city to build a park. It needed money to be set up. And that was all got from selling houses on the park. It's just like Regent's Park or Hyde Park. Japan Rail does that in Japan for all their, how they build their Shinkansen lines. There's no reason to tax anybody for building infrastructure when Land value taxation does that for you, as Dave explained so, to me. So, so thank you for this, because I've asked repeatedly why High Speed 2 can't be funded. Okay, if you have agricultural land, let's say 20 minutes from London, which is what, after all, a station on High Speed 2 would effectively be surrounded by agricultural land 20 minutes from London. You know, you'd have two, two new towns created between London and Birmingham, one between Birmingham and Manchester, it's £3,000 an acre as agricultural land. It's about £3 million an acre with planning permission. Okay, So a few thousand acres provides you essentially with billions and billions of pounds. Yeah, absolutely. So why in God's name are we funding High Speed 2 with other people's money? Thank you, Rory. It's a big question. Nobody yeah. can understand. And another podcast we should introduce you to both the Ryan Bourne, who you may know from the IEAs and the Cato Institute, and Richard Wellings, who have um, said this. And obviously, for balance, we'd have to have a couple of HS2 proponents, but that's exactly correct. I can't see, nobody's explained why it can't be funded. I mean, Dave can point out how much land values went up when the Jubilee line was put in, and there wasn't any contribution required from all those landlords who extracted even more rents. It's very strange. They don't do that in Japan. So there is a way to do that with both our roads and to pay people who aren't using the roads so you actually get a benefit when you decide to stay at home. You could actually be paid an extra bit of salary. With an, interest, with an interesting addition to this, which is uh, before COVID, I made very many low-quality road journeys. Okay, Post-COVID, I've made fewer high-quality journeys. I went to see my father in Wales. Okay, And for the first time, I drove from Kent to Wales non-stop without the traffic grinding to a halt at any point on the journey. Okay, yep. So you've only got to reduce the volume of traffic by about 20%. And not only do you, do you raise a huge amount of revenue, but the quality of each journey, by which I mean the certainty over your time of arrival. 
Because yeah, basically, exactly. effectively, driving on the southwestern section of the M25, if you live in Kent, any journey to Heathrow is like a game of Russian roulette, pretty <laughs> much. Yeah. That you have to allow two hours extra to get to Heathrow because of the one time in six when a load of arseholes coming off the M3 just block the whole thing. Yeah. I'm, I'm particularly holding the M3 responsible. It seems a bit unfair. But <laughs> this is such an yeah. obvious fucking idea. <laughs> okay, why is it that it's so slow to be adopted? There's uh, vested interests, very strong vested interests. And um, what's interesting, I think we started following each other on Twitter about six years ago, where you wrote about that specifically, about why it's very hard to get those cheap train journeys where you have to catch a specific train. Because if you miss that or plane, you've had to pay so much more and then you have to put so much extra time just to arrive. It, it makes it pointless, you know, because that's time which you could spend doing other things and it's got so, so with, with an advanced ticket to Manchester on HS2, I'd have to arrive at Euston 40 minutes early or plan to arrive at Euston with 40 minutes to spare for fear of missing my train. So the time gain is completely eradicated. Bingo. Yeah, yeah exactly. You so understood we, that perfectly. Yeah, we haven't got a huge amount of time left. We're going we're gonna to try and be compact <laughs> for my podcast is unusual. But... So let, let's try and sum up. The point I was going to make, which I'd like everyone to comment on, is that I've just, oh, I've just heard from uh, Professor Margaret Bell, University of Newcastle, and she's talking about the rationing transport in the future, rationing people's ability to transport and their access to transport. But the idea that as we're coming towards the winter, obviously there's now going to be this more COVID-19 restrictions coming in, people will be at home for longer. They will be at home for longer with the lights on and the heating on. And then... So we're looking at maybe everyone's energy output increases by 75% while working at home. So any sort of, you know, uh, any benefits are completely negated by, by that. Um, how do we get around that? Can, is there any way we can get around those pretty sobering statistics by using a localist idea? Well, surely, uh, yes. surely the most important thing we can do is to insulate people's homes and provide them with things like um, rooftop uh, photo cells producing electricity. And it's, I think, criminal at a time of climate change being recognised that the government has done away with the subsidies for solar panels and things of that nature. Uh, we should be encouraging people. Uh, I had solar panels on my previous house. When I moved here, uh, I could have put solar panels up, but I couldn't afford to. There's no government grant to help me do that. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sure millions of people would put solar panels if the economics turned out right for them. Uh, and that would be good for the economy. It would be good for power distribution, et cetera, et cetera. Rory, what do you think? Uh, no, I, uh, that is a concern, I, I, which hadn't occurred to me properly, that when people are heating their homes, I'm not sure it's going to be as severe as that. There may be a, a, a saving in office heating, and there's also a reduction in transportation, yeah. which is partly good news. Um, the other thing I would say is that um, I'm a semi-localist, by which I mean is that everything should be as local as it can be. 
okay? And I'd be very keen to see a revival in, for example, uh, you know, much more in the way of entertainment and uh, hospitality taking place locally rather than in large cities. So anything disagglomerative is good news. I'd also make a point, however, that um, uh, one of the values of the internet is it disagglomerated consumption for about a decade before it disagglomerated the world of work. So one of the good things about the internet is when I grew up in the Welsh borders, if you wanted to buy anything a bit unusual or a bit weird, you had to travel to Cardiff or Bristol, typically. Okay. Now, the great thing is that in some ways, businesses like Amazon, which are the opposite of localism, but one thing they do do is they massively even out access to consumption and goods geographically. Yeah. So, you know, you can buy the same weird piece of hi-fi equipment in Ochtermachti as you can in central London. The best bookshops no longer require you to live in a city. Netflix shows the same films in Harpenden as it does in Hampstead. So one great thing about this in terms of disagglomeration is the extracted power of the landowner over entertainment and consumption has already been loosened by the Internet. And now I think Zoom does the same for production mm-hmm. to an extent. Yeah, um, you know, you know, I'll be honest with you. Growing up, growing up in a wide valley market town, okay, um, in that was a bit boring. You know, I wouldn't want music to be entirely localized. You know, I wouldn't want my access to music to be confined to Monmouthshire folk groups. Okay, <laughs> fine, no doubt, as, as they may um, be. There are many. Yes, there are many. You know, Good ones available. Uh, I'm sure there are many, many fine ones sure available. Yeah. But, but so, so that opportunity for you to be as local as you can be, it doesn't mean you have to sort of revert to a kind of, you know, <laughs> kind of semi-nomadic existence where you're dependent on the things around you. But it does mean things can be as local as people want them to be. And I think, you know, living in a dormitory town now just outside London, you know, London sucked a huge amount of interest out of those towns. The other thing, of course, which I think if you want proof of the Georgist argument, is the dual-income household, which has probably increased property prices almost to an extent where it's wiped out the economic gains. Yep, yep. I'd agree. Yeah. Eric, do you want to, do you want to sum up? Because we're, yep. we're gonna, this is not just a one-off. This is a series yep. of podcasts. Other guests will, will come and go. We're the core four. Well, one so tiny thing, rationing. If yeah. you want people to buy more of something, you reduce the price as they buy more. If you want people yeah. to use less of something, you increase the price as they use more. Now, I kind of think that everybody in Britain has the right to drive down the mall once a year for free. You know what I mean? I think everybody's got the, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to live in a Soviet existence where you have kind of special lanes for the nomenclatura, okay? And I think everybody's got a right to drive over certain road surfaces once, once, you know, once a year, once a month or whatever for free. I think it should get progressively more expensive the more you use it. That's the way to price it. Yeah. And then that brings us perfectly into Eric's idea of, <clears throat> of, of ride sharing. And, but, but again, ride yep. sharing can be local as well. That's, that's the whole point, mm. isn't it? Yeah, I would say to the energy argument can be fixed by district heating, which is done, funny enough, in the United States and of the northern cities. You've seen the steam coming out of pavements or sidewalks in American films. Copenhagen has district heating. Singapore has district cooling. That by itself can reduce total energy bills dramatically for people staying in. That's a great thing which can be done and neighborhoods can be reconfigured. In terms of what taxi is, it's a trans exchange of which ride sharing is one specific thing that will that can be done, especially as you want to reduce the 
cost of every unit of travel moving along there. When Vickery, the economist, came up with the idea of um, charging for parking, it, people thought he was mad. It took another 30 or 40 years in Singapore leading the way for that to come in. The same things have happened with energy pricing and virtual electricity markets. What we can do is change everything for um, the better with this idea of pricing with space time. And again, I can share more details about that, but this has been utterly fantastic. So thank you, Rory, and thank you, Kevin, for hosting this. No, it's been good. Uh, I've, I've, in, I've enjoyed the chats. We've, we've all learned something. And so I like the idea of, of Dave and Rory agreeing on something. You bring up Napoleon III, and then Rory lives in Napoleon III's house. He doesn't live there now, of course, Napoleon III. Um, it's not yet no. B. But um, so I, I do like those kind of coincidental links. So you have been listening to episode one of our new podcast series. This episode has been called The New Localism. Uh, episode two will be along with you shortly. We may have a different guest, we're not quite sure, but it'll, it'll still be me. Anyway, that's the, that's the one thing we can guarantee. Hopefully Rory and Dave can join us as well, as well as Eric. Um, it's, I think Richard Wellings will be hopefully joining us in the next episode. So thank you all for listening. Um, if you want to find out more, you can contact us. There'll, there'll be, there's a link under this under this uh, recording there'll be a link that you can contact us and you can suggest topics you can invite yourself on the program and we can we can hear from you so please do contribute but in the meantime thanks to rory thanks to dave thanks to eric and thank you for listening thanks a huge pleasure thanks very much indeed thank you